2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Friedman, and my guest today is Seljan Kujukusel. Seljan is a social anthropologist specializing in ecological anthropology. She completed her PhD at Humboldt University in Berlin, and currently is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Barcelona, studying the effects of climate change on indigenous ecological knowledge in Siberia and the Amazon. Her first book, Embracing Landscape, Living with Reindeer and Hunting Among Spirits in South Siberia, published in 2021 by Barricón Books, Examines human animal relations and indigenous concepts of domestication and wilderness among the nomadic reindeer herder Ducha of northern Mongolia. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So thank you so much, Seljun, for joining me.
1: Hi, hey, thank you for inviting me, Maggie. It's really a pleasure to be here. <laughs>
0: So first, could you explain a little bit for listeners who the Dukha are? I think this is a very small uh, community. I think in your book, you said today the population is around 500 people or maybe even less um, and probably entirely unfamiliar to listeners, I would imagine. So if you could just say a little bit, just the basic background info about where the Ducha live and sort of what listeners need to know to understand kind of the history and
1: culture of the Duha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Ducha are like the smallest ethnic minority in Mongolia. They live in the northern Mongolia in the Taiga forests. Um, like you said, they are more or less around five hundred people at the moment, uh, but not all of them are nomadic, but we're gonna discuss that. So Um, I think the last time I visited, which actually has been some time, there were around 150 or maximum 200 people who still live in the taiga, you know, uh, with their reindeers and continue maintaining a nomadic lifestyle. Um, And the interesting thing about Duha is that uh, they have reindeers. So they are the only reindeer herders in Mongolia. Um, And... And, you know, they, they are, they are actually originally from Tuon Republic in Russia. So, so their native language is actually Dukan, is which is a branch of Tuon language. But of course, today they all speak Mongolian as well. But they are uh, kind of, you know, their native language is different than Mongolian. Um, and their history is also a little bit of interesting because, you know, they were in this border area on the Taiga Forest between Mongolia and Russia. Um, you know, sort of going in between borders, but then more or less in 1940s, you know, the border was closed and they had to choose a site. So some of them stayed on the Mongolian side while there is still another community on the Russian side as well. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, since 1940s, you know, the Dukha are more on the Mongolian side, let's say. Mm. And
0: in terms of subsistence methods, you define the ducha as both reindeer herders and hunter-gatherers. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like, how both sort of livestock pastoralism and hunting and gathering are practiced among the Dukha?
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about the community as well, which was also kind of the topic of my thesis dissertation. So, um, you know, they have reindeer. So in the first glance, they look like pastorals that just, you know, uh, have reindeers, which is, of course, <laughs> true in a way. But um, the thing is that they practice small-scale reindeer pastoralism, which means that the main function of the reindeer is more for riding and pecking. And for their milk, but not really for their meat. And also the reindeer don't have like economic value in terms of market economy. They do not sell the reindeer. They don't, you know, like really slaughter the reindeer unless they really need it. So the reindeers are more like the horse of the taiga, let's say for the duha. And their main subsistence is based on hunting and gathering. But of course, in this geography, which is really cold most of the time, it's more hunting. So that's why I say they are hunter-gatherers with reindeer, um, because normally they hunt animals like you know deer, bears, elk, moose, or wild reindeer, while they keep the reindeer for uh, riding, pecking, and for the milk. Yeah, and that really is very interesting because you know in my dissertation I was looking into human-animal relations and you know all these big theories about hunter-gatherers' relations with animals and then pastoralists, you know, this changing relations. And my question was, well, yeah, Duha are one of the rare communities that uh, have both domesticated uh, animals, but while they are mainly hunters. So that kind of uh, brings, you know, different interesting uh, things about human-animal relations, let's say.
0: Right. Uh, And so the last section of your book, you... Discuss uh, the hunting ban uh, that's been implemented in this region by the Mongolian government in this kind of national park area where the Dukha live, which is a not which is a phenomenon that's not isolated to this context. This kind of conservation-oriented um, ban on hunting in territories occupied by indigenous peoples, which have these really profound repercussions. So And so during your research, you were there, I believe, when this hunting ban was first implemented, and then were able to observe the changes uh, that it affected among the Dukha. Can you talk about that, about what some of those changes were in this relatively short period of time of less than 10 years, right, since this hunting ban? What are some of those changes that have occurred among the Dukha?
1: Yeah, that that's actually that that's very important because it kind of affects their subsistence styles recently. Because, um, like I, I was just saying that they are hunter getters but it's true that with this recent ban, it is kind of changing. So what happened is in 2011, uh, the area that they live was declared a national park, um, and then I was there in 2013, and because the rules kind of started to be implemented more in you know in, in a few years, I guess. So so yeah, suddenly you know let's say let's say in one day for the dukha because i was there at that day that the authorities came with some papers in their hands saying that okay now this is a national park and you cannot hunt here anymore and here is a list of how much fine you are supposed to pay if you if you hunt you know certain animals um of course it was completely shocking because again like i said because of the reindeer i think people see them more like pastoral, pastoralists while the reindeers do not really have that kind of economic value for the society. So, so, so if they cannot hunt, what are you gonna? Are they gonna do? It's like really impossible to survive. Um. So what happened uh, of course, they didn't stop hunting in one day. They they kept hunting, uh, at least for the next four or five years that I was there. But it was illegal, and it started to change a lot of things. Um, first of all. Of course, they could uh, hunt much less. They were extremely nervous because there were some serious uh, controls at at, some time as well because even actually there was an incident that uh, some group of young men were were almost uh, arrested in 2015, I think it was. So it's not like they put these rules and they forgot about them like they were really checking on them, you know. And... I think an important change that happened is that after a couple of years, after this ban, the government realized that, of course, that doesn't make sense because, you know, people cannot go to the supermarkets to buy meat like they they are hunters. uh, And they started to kind of give some small salaries, like a stipend to the people to compensate for this. But uh, I think that has become a big change like so people were of course happy about that because like like many nomadic societies today of course they have a strong connection with the outside world you know the children go to school they some people work you know some young people live in the village older people usually settle to the village so so of course they need money you know to pay for all these expenses it was good they liked to have that you know so that they had kind of like a more stable um, income let's say But on the other hand, I saw that a lot of changes started to occur in the society because, for instance, alcoholism. Like, uh, men could not really hunt like before. They were were kind of left uh, without anything to do in winters, and they had the money. So I saw that a lot of young men started to spend this money on alcohol, you know, not to buy meat. Uh, or also something very interesting that a lot of families started to build uh, houses in the village with that money They kind of used it uh, Well, as I said, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but they like it kind of changed certain things in the society And also I think uh, In terms of a more deeper feeling, you know, this idea that they are controlled in their own home or they are criminalized in their own landscape, in their home, really, really created a big difference because um, it felt very unfair to everybody, you know. They were even saying that, well, we see people hunting, like people from outside, from the steppe, from the village, or even foreigners sometimes, that they hunt here illegally. Nobody is controlling them, but they control us because they know that we live here, you know, so... That kind of created this feeling of um, unfairness, let's say, and uh, also this feeling of weakness. You know, they—they, they, I, I could see that people were feeling that they are not in control in their own home, which must be like a really terrible feeling. Um, and the last thing uh, is that I think I, I didn't witness that, but my theory is that that may also be something that affects human-animal relations in long term, for sure. Because, uh, maybe we can discuss this, of course, later, but, um, you know, hunting is not just a means to get meat, but it's a way of connecting to the landscape, to the land spirits, um, because there are, like, really, really a lot of um, detailed rules about how to hunt, where to hunt. It's very much related with... Uh, Land spirits, land owners—you know there are certain areas that you can hunt. Other areas that are uh, filled with ancestral spirits, so you cannot hunt there. And there are certain local spirits that control hunting. So it's it's the way of interacting with the geography. And I think when hunting is gone, that's all gonna lose its meaning slowly, you know. So because this exchange between um, the landscape and people through hunting. Is I think one of the main concepts uh, of animism in the taiga. So what I mean by that is that for the zuha, hunting uh, is considered like a gift from the land spirits. So so like to have success in hunting, it's not about technical hunting skills, but it's about how you how what kind of relations you have with the land spirits and if you deserve a hunt or not. It's it's a gift. It's basically a gift. You know. So, now that this is not there anymore, you know, this exchange, let's say, this mutual exchange with the spirits and landscape is going to decrease, and I believe that may affect things in long term. And lastly, sorry I talked too much, but lastly, I think that may also change the relations with the reindeer, because what happens is because of this hunting ban, now I think the, rain, um, the duha kind of give more focus on reindeer herding because that's the only thing that is left for them. That, that That's the only reason that makes sense to stay in the taiga. So right now they have small-scale uh, reindeer pastoralism, like I said at the beginning. And uh, from what I read and from what I know is that actually most other reindeer herders in the north also were practicing small-scale reindeer herding, but then through time they became more like, you know, Big, uh, big big, scale market economy based herding and of course the relations between reindeer and human are not the same You know, because right now there are only few reindeers and as I said they are not uh, involved in the market economy they don't slaughter them, they don't sell them but once the herders start to sell their animals I'm not saying it changes completely but it kind of affects some dynamics so that may be something uh, that can happen to the coin as well
0: yeah. And so can you talk about sort of how you would define or understand the nature of the value of the reindeer to the ducha, or sort of what the Dukha reindeer relations are? Because you said they don't have sort of an economic value, right? It's not a kind of capitalistic value. Um, something just like one sentence in your book that stood out to me is the fact that You wrote that whenever you would ask people to quantify their reindeer herds, they sort of weren't able to, that they couldn't put an exact number of like, oh, yeah, I have 15 reindeer. They could name their reindeer individually and they knew their kind of individual characteristics and sort of knew them as like individual, almost like persons or like as members of their family in a way, but that they couldn't see their herd as a kind of totality in a way. And I think that's a really interesting... I think that sheds some light on how these relations between the Dukha and their herds are conceived. So can you just talk a little bit about that, about what that kind of traditional nature of the relationship between the Dukha and their
1: reindeer? Mm -hmm. And that's something I also discussed in detail in my book, like you were saying because um you know normally of course um like human relations with domesticated animals can also really depend like uh, in their economical value if it's if they're going to sell it if you know if they spend a lot of time with the animal or not and in the case of tukha because they do not uh, slaughter the animals regularly but as i said it's not like a taboo you know if an animal is too old is ill, or if there is like an emergency situation that they they don't have food, they can slaughter the animals. But normally, they prefer not to because they have just a few. And like 15, 20 is considered kind of like few because uh, for the nomadism, actually, reindeers are very important because they have to pack. And I think an average family of four people would need at least 10 reindeers, uh, or if not more, for, for migration, because then four people will write for reindeers and then others to pack. Um, so, but this, the fact that the rain, they keep the reindeers uh, all their lives means that one family will spend with an individual reindeer almost like 15 years. So it's kind of like, the, like dogs, let's say, like pets, you know, they, they spend a long time together. And of course that gives... Um, Opportunities to get to know each other. Let's say <laughs> to make it more simple, you know, um, they do name their reindeer one by one. They can recognize the reindeer, individual reindeers, even from their sound, you know. So because it's a long time spent together, um, and so I, I would say that this is why the relations are intimate. But of course, it's not the relations of uh, pet keeping uh, that we know in the cities. It's another type of relations still. Um, they do they own the reindeers or do they consider themselves as the owners of the reindeer? I mean, they, they do. In a way, they do. And of course, there is quite a lot of control uh, imposed on the reindeer because, uh, you know, they, they do take the reindeer to the pasture, then sometimes they tie it, they castrate the reindeer. So, so I wouldn't really say that, uh, you know, they do not have any kind of control on the reindeer. Of course, they do have a control, but what I claim in my book is I think this control is a bit similar to parental control. Like, because, of course, also parents do control their children. They have a lot of rules. They do things that children do not want to do. But in the end, it's a nurturing control that is not really based on domination, but it's based on care and nurturing, let's say. And I think there are really interesting things that shows us uh, that's reindeer I kind of like in the family kinship system of the Dukkha. Because, for instance, um, the Dukkha believe that um, when a person breaks a taboo in hunting or in other domains of life, um, like, how can I say, people are kind of responsible also from each other's um, deeds. Like if, if a hunter, let's say, hunts a pregnant animal, then his wife, May also get uh, sick, let's say, so, so, or so community members kind of have, uh, yeah, they, they have relations in that sense that people are responsible for other people's faults as well. And reindeer are also in that system, you know. They, they believe that like somebody does something wrong and they're hurt, maybe attacked by wolves, let's say, or similarly, like uh, they have um, they choose a sacred reindeer to protect the family. Actually, they have that also in Mongolian herds in the steppes as well. And then this reindeer has also power to protect the family. So to cut it short, uh, I think this is why it's different than large-scale reindeer herding, that there is an individual relationship between people and their reindeer. And this number issue, that they they don't say the number is, I think... um, It's because for sure the number is not important in terms of how many reindeer do we have this year so that we can slaughter this much or we can sell this much. Like, maybe that's why they don't care so much about the number. And the second thing is, I think, and I heard this among other pastoralists as well, it's kind of not considered very good to tell a number because then, you know, there is some kind of bad energy, let's say... Like if you specify numbers of your hurts, it's possible that somebody think it's too much. Maybe they're jealous so you may lose the hurt. So there's this kind of uh, unspoken bliss.
0: In the sense of like it would sort of induce personal envy or in the sense of like this kind of larger kind of karmic cosmic balance?
1: I think both. That's That's my feeling is, you know, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that starts to get a a really interesting topic of the nature of control and control of the landscape among the Ducha and the extent to which that is perceived as possible and desirable. Um, And something you write about in your book is this idea among anthropologists that, pastoralism and with pastoralism or with like the domestication of animals comes kind of greater control of the landscape and over one's natural environment. Um, And that if you're going to domesticate animals, that then by definition that requires you to exert some kind of control over your surroundings and that changes kind of the mindset with which one approaches one's natural surroundings, where you start to see yourself as kind of the master of animals or of the landscape, as opposed to living in this more oh, symbiotic um, or kind of mutually dependent relationship with animals or with the natural environment. Um, And so what seemed really interesting to me um, from your findings among the duha is that I think you're quite clear that this idea of control doesn't really exist even though they are a pastoralist people as well as a hunting community um, and that there is seemingly kind of no sense um, of the environment as something that should be controlled or that can be controlled or that they want to control. And so all of these ideas that you bring up in your book of um, this kind of karmic balance that needs to be maintained um, in order for hunting to be successful in order for migrations Um, to be successful or this idea that um, you shouldn't or that you can't or won't um, assign value uh, to your herds or even quantify your herds um, and that that can carry sort of retributions with it. I think these are really interesting examples um, of how the Dukha experience their landscape um through this sort of shared uh through the through the combination of pastoralism and hunting and how the dual practice of those two subsistence methods in turn inform experiences of the landscape and interactions with the landscape
1: so what i realized and i would actually like to discuss your experience with that briefly after i um, say this is landscape, the geography, to me, at the end of my research, seemed like the core of everything. Because, and I think the general approach, just to keep it very simple, is we can say that it's home. It's home for people. It's not a foreign geography. It's home for people. But it's also home for the reindeer. And it's also home for the animals that they hunt. So I think the basic concept, that's why I call my book Embracing Landscape, is that... All these three parties, they perceive, uh, let's say, the taiga forest in that case, as their home. And what I realized is that, like people really, really keep talking about the taiga. Like we discuss the hunting, we discuss reindeers, you know, we discuss different aspects of life. But then one thing that always comes back is people are talking about their lovely taiga and how they want to go there. And if they're in the village for five days, they're already bored and they miss the taiga. Old people are always complaining like, oh, I want to go back to the taiga, you know. So it is their home. And to me at the beginning, or let's say to maybe to anyone who lives in a city, it's kind of hard to understand because it's like when you look from an outsider's perspective, we are in the middle of nothing, you know. Okay, we see forests, we see mountains, valleys, but it's like, it's like a really harsh, you know, like let's say wild geography that's, that is very difficult to have any any reference points for us no and then i realized that of course for them this is really home like i don't know like the kind of similar feeling that maybe we would have in the city that we grow up no or in a town that we grow up like we turn a valley and then people have this i call it like map of memories That's you know because maybe they were there two years ago and they lost their reindeer and we are in, in another area of course, this is also connected with the local spirits and the animistic worldview, let's say, but then it's mixed. It's this, like memories with spirits, but also memories with animals or memories among people. But then, I don't know, we are in another autumn camp, let's say, and somebody will say, oh, you know, I was here and maybe the first time that she fell in love with someone, you know, like we are in another faraway mountain and somebody said, oh, like, my first trip with my father that passed away after a couple of years was here, we were here making a fire, so of course it's, it's everything is so familiar and people really really miss it when they are away from the taiga. And it is true, like you said, in, in the case of Dukha, because they they are, like, a, they have more animistic worldview, of course this is connected with a lot of spirits and ancestors as well but what is interesting to me and that's what i wanted to ask you is i think this is also kind of connected with the nomadic pastoralism or nomadic lifestyle because one thing that i never forget i don't know if you had similar experiences it's um like um you know there is this um one of the last pastoral nomadic pastoral societies in Turkey, and I didn't work with them as a researcher, but I was uh, visiting them, let's say, out of personal curiosity. And then uh, I like there was this uh, old man in the village that heard that I was going to the to, to live with a family, like who is in the pastoral move, and he said to me, "Oh, in this area right now that you are going, because it's spring, in that particular area there is this tree." please send my greetings to the tree. Oh, you know, we're talking about Turkey. It's not like when you look from outside, it's not like an animistic society in terms of Shamanism and all these things. But no. And I remember exactly the same thing. Old people were really missing being out there in the pasture, in the valleys, in the mountains, wherever they are, you know. So so I thought, wow, this connection with landscape for, for nomadic people is really strong, you know. It's something of course related with animals, but I feel like it's even beyond that. Um, I don't know if you had this kind of experiences, but. Why take
2: one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zipline through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You repel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas.
1: This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu.
0: Certainly, yeah. I mean, yeah, so in my research um, on the Bedouin in the Middle East, I think you get the same phenomenon of kind of sacred importance, even in the modern day, you know, even under kind of formal Islam, you know, you still get um, these really strong sentiments and familial ties and senses of, heritage attached to natural features in the landscape attached to trees attached to um, mountain like specific like mountain peaks or like high places in the landscape attached to water of course that's of course really important in arid climates attached to certain springs or wells or reservoirs or things like that uh, I wouldn't I don't know if I would say that it's like a sense of spirits um, so much anymore especially in the modern context but certainly this idea of ancestral connections to certain natural features and i think that does come from the fact of from where um, bedouin burials are practiced that you bury you tend to bury especially like important people in your family especially the sheikh, or the tribal leader or whoever will be buried near a kind of important place in the landscape. And then you sort of visit that place. It's important because of its natural features. So you visit it continuously year after year in your migrations. But then because there's an important person buried there, those two things kind of mutually reinforce each other. And that place becomes important for both of those reasons both for the like whatever important natural feature is there and for the grave of whatever important person is buried there and those two things and the significance of those can't be kind of unentangled from each other it seemed to me that there's a similar thing among the duha as well although you, so you wrote that um, in terms of burial practices, like the whole taiga is a cemetery, basically. So I was, so I was actually wondering what that looks like among the dukkha in terms of burial practices and then in terms of how sort of memory and this sort of ancestral memory is preserved and maintained in relation to the landscape.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the Dukha still practice uh, sky burial. Let's say you know they, especially if they are in the taiga. And I think people who live in the villages are buried. But um, if somebody dies in the taiga, they do leave the body outside um, for the animals to consume. Um, I, I've never actually witnessed that. Like it's, it never happened when I was there. But I was just you know asking people and listening to stories about it. So that is, of course, I think one of the other reasons that kind of makes this geography more secret. I don't know if sacred is the right word here, but um, because the deaths are also part of the memories, you know, like every in every camp, let's say, because basically, sorry, I never mentioned that basic information, but basically the Luka move more or less maybe five, six times a year and they are a bit more stable in winters, actually, especially recently. They mostly go to the same winter camp. Even two families, they have um, wooden houses in this winter camp, while others are staying, still staying in the tent. But because they chose this winter camp, because it's really close to the village, because, you know, children go to school. So it's it's like in terms of more practical reasons, let's say, they choose that, that winter camp. While before, they were obviously taking the reindeer to much further valleys but now what they do is uh, they still take the reindeer to faraway valleys, but they leave the reindeer there. And then families take turns to control the reindeers. But apart from winter, uh, I think their summer camp is also more or less maybe the same camp. But in and um, spring, day, they move more, but more or less maybe six times a year they move, I would say, these days. Um, and of course... Around all these places, as much as memories of people or animals or spirits, also there is um, people had to leave their loved ones after they died. You know, So that's another factor that kind of uh, adds more <laughs> emotions, let's say, to the landscape. But also, apart from that, uh, there is also certain ancestral uh, places that each family have kind of specific areas where the shaman of their uh, family, but in the old times, were buried. they Bur- buried now, you know, buried. sky buried. Well, it's difficult to find the vocabulary. Um, so families are supposed to go visit these uh, ancestral places that are called the hilga every year to give their offerings. Of course, nowadays, they are not able to do it every year. And also some of them are on the other side of the border. So there is also official reasons that some families cannot visit their Dahilga. But still, you know, um, apart from like this, you know, personal memories, there is also more ancestral ties uh, that each family has. And apart from that, also there is other spiritual ties that uh, that applies to everybody. Like a certain local spirit that resides on a mountain, or like a certain lake that uh, that uh, is important, and people have to give offerings to that lake as well. You know, so there's it's it's very complicated. You know, like at the beginning, you think like, okay, the landscape is spirited, so they have they they believe that they have spirits. But of course, no, it's very very complex beliefs um, and information about that. But yes, the deaths are of course. I think like one of the big factors that people are so deeply attached to the landscape. And I think even the relations with the land the the reindeer is kind of connected to the to this attachment to the landscape. Because look when we look more simply, I think that's something that you also discussed in one of your podcasts. Like why do these people live in such hard conditions, you know? So in terms of duha, like they, they, are, they were hunters, and okay, hunting is really like a very direct relation with the landscape, with the geography. But now that they cannot even hunt, they don't have an economic benefit from the reindeers. Really, it would be so easy for them just to settle to the village and maybe have uh, sheep, other types of animals that they can still herd in the village, let's say. But no, they want to stay in the taiga, and reindeer are kind of the only means to stay in the taiga. Because um, what happens is, reindeer is the only domesticated animal that can survive in the taiga. And right now, the Ducha do not have mobile uh, snowmobiles like the Sami or like some, some other communities in Siberia. So, there is no other way of staying in a taiga if you don't have reindeer. So, they kind of need the reindeer actually more than the reindeer need people this is for sure because another interesting thing about reindeer is that it's an animal that they that doesn't need to be fed artificially but they just uh, they, they find their own food reindeer people don't feed the reindeer by collecting food um, so yeah people need the reindeer if they want to be in the taiga that's that's basically very much related with the landscape as well
0: yeah that's sort of what i was thinking about as well in my question earlier, this sense that it, that the taiga is sort of, is first and foremost kind of the reindeer's home, and the duha are almost like visitors in a way. Not quite, that's not like, that's not quite the right way of putting it, but, there, but the, I think it seemed to me like there is this sense of that the reindeer are the one who, are sort of the ones who belong there. This is the reindeer's home, and the Dukha kind of experience the taiga in many ways through the reindeer or because of the reindeer in a lot of ways. Um, So that, that, and just the way that sort of the Dukha perception of the landscape and attachment to the landscape is led by the reindeer first uh, in a way is really interesting. Um, And so I wanted to ask on that note, so much of your book and your research is about, domestication versus wilderness or wildernization, And so I wanted to ask how you kind of define those concepts and those terms in this context, uh, because I think it's quite a tricky and nuanced context to approach those categories of animal domestication like you sort of just brought up versus wild animals. And I think this is a really interesting case study into what those categories can mean. And you seem, I think, throughout your book, you're quite hesitant to use either of those terms, or at least you use them with a lot of kind of nuance and qualifications. So even though it is an extremely, I know it's like a very large and complicated topic, I was hoping you could start to just spell out some of those nuance, the nuances of some of, the, of those categories of domesticated versus wild animals and domesticated versus wild landscapes as well.
1: No, like you say, it's, it's quite a technical and complicated issue. And even while I'm talking every time I'm like, Oh, I shouldn't use that vocabulary. I shouldn't say that. But um, let me see if I can manage to like really, really make it simple and summarize. But I mean, maybe like that way I can make it more simple. So of course, if you want to understand what is domesticated or what is domestication, what is wild, I started very simply, like, let's, let's ask in their native language if people have these categories, no? It's like a very simple start, but I think it can give us a lot of clues. So, for instance, for reindeer, no? The, they have their domesticated reindeer, but they also have uh, wild reindeer, the same species that live in the wild, that do not live together with people. So I was wondering if they call it also domesticated reindeer and wild reindeer, or for the animals and for reindeers. I realized that the categories were quite different than that. So what happened is um, they have two different, two completely different words for domesticated reindeer and wild reindeer. That that we but we say domesticated reindeer and wild reindeer, and uh, for their domesticated reindeer they say ibi, and ibi is. I, like, I couldn't really find the etymology of the word very clearly, but uh, it could be related with the word deer, let's say. Ibi, they call it. But the wild reindeer, they call it completely different in a new vocabulary, which is Jailik'an. And that literally means the game that belongs to the land. So, so here it's not so much like wilderness or domestication of the animal, but it's more like the affiliation of the animal, no? Like the animal that belongs to the land and the animal ivi that's belongs or that's are that belongs to the household, let's say, because also the word Ivi can be related with the word word home in Turkish language, languages, not exactly in duha, ook, but you know, I have read a couple of linguists that makes this connection, but that's not, that's not <laughs> completely certain. But two different categories that has nothing to do with the wildernization or domestication of the animals. But on the other hand, for the eevee, for their domesticated reindeer, they have two other words that they use. One is omak, which means animal that is, uh, let's say, wild in the terms that, that is difficult to control, uh, and josh an animal that is calm. So I don't want to make it very complicated, but you see these categories are just not exactly like the categories that we have in the academic categories, let's say, no? So then it means that if you want to understand these concepts, in a way we should forget about all these categories and then start from the beginning, you know, like trying to look at from people's perspective, which was, of course, very complicated. But but like just... As a summary, I, I realized that these categories, of course, they differentiate these two categories, but just the meaning attribute to them is not exactly the same. And I think I can just maybe conclude that wild is not wild in terms of uh, wild's character, but it's more like animals that belong to the land and that belong to the spirits and that are outside of the household. And the domesticated animals, I think, are a bit more like family members, and also because of the because of some cosmological rules that they have that I mentioned before. That I think this is kind of the main difference, you know. So this is why they behave like they're the way they behave is also kind of like this. Like we do not behave exactly the same to strangers <laughs> that are on the street, let's say, and also the people from the family or from the larger family. But that doesn't mean that we behave our family members better necessarily and the others. No, sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes we behave strangers even more politely uh, because the relations are a bit more delicate, you know, which is really happening sometimes with wild animals while hunting. Like the respect is maybe more at the core of the relations because as I said, in, for hunting, you know, respecting the animals is really important to, to deserve this hunt, etc. So it's another subject, but this is a way of treating uh, animals, let's say. While uh, reindeers, the, let's say domesticated reindeers in our own academic term, it's another kind of relations that are a bit more intimate, a bit more close, more like family relations that are certainly more intimate, but sometimes that can also be a bit more problematic in terms of having uh, that you think that you have more rights on these people, you know? So yeah, let's summarize like this, this to make it simple. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very helpful. And I think um, I like the way both just now when you're speaking and in your book, you draw these analogies to kind of personal relationships, um, which I think makes the nature of these relationships more comprehensible uh, to those of us who, you know, who are from other contexts, other countries who grew up in cities. Um, And yeah, giving, creating a sense of animals as having a kind of personhood um, and that human-animal relations, that even maybe even that phrase isn't sort of the most accurate. (laughs) Um, And that if we want to understand those relations, we should... Uh, envision them as being more like human to human relationships as well, rather than casting them in the mold of a kind of completely different category of relations. I'll stop with the difficult questions uh, for now. (laughs) Thank you. I'm just curious uh, about how you got into this research, how you sort of made your way to the Dukha as a, you know, as we've said, a very small and somewhat remote community that isn't very well known. How did you sort of encounter this area of research?
1: Yeah, that was kind of also a bit by chance. So I was on a long trip <laughs> in Asia and my final, well, the final destination of the trip was Mongolia. Um, so I heard about know, there's this community in the north that there are noahs, they live with their reindeer, so I was already very interested but I couldn't go at the time because it's really difficult to reach from the capital. To where the Dukha live, but then I went back and, I, and during my studies, actually I started in my masters that um like I took a class called uh, Shamanism and Central Asia, and then I was really interested in these topics of uh, animism and also we kind of studied a lot about nomadic societies in this class. So I, I kind of had a general interest, let's say, to societies that are nomadic or that practice shamanism, that have a bit of a more animistic worldview, and that have animals. And then I remembered to do that. oh, there was this community in Mongolia that I heard about when I went there. And to me, it was interesting because they do also practice shamanism. They are nomadic, they have reindeers. But what is personally interesting for me is that also... Um, their native language, Tuan or Duhan, is from the same family with Turkish, which is my native language. So I thought, oh, wow, I could even learn their language kind of easily compared to another language to start from zero. Um, so I kind of were really interested. I thought, okay, that that has everything I am interested, so why not? And then I started researching. Of course, there are other researchers who work in the area, so I started contacting some of these researchers. Actually, one of them, uh, linguist, Elizabeth Jagadning, was in Turkey. I met her in a conference. I asked her. So like this, slowly and slowly, I got the introduction and contacts. And then I kind of went there (laughs) out of the blue, let's say. But that's how it all started, yeah.
0: And so what about your methodology in general? Because um, you're not just an academic researcher, but you also... Work as a journalist as a photojournalist um, and your book is beautifully illustrated uh, with some really uh, evocative photographs uh, of the people and of the landscape so can you talk about that maybe approach to your studies how you combine kind of academic research and methodologies with maybe a more journalist-driven or kind of public education-driven approach to this topic, if you do that at all.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, it's, it's true that I have been working as a photojournalist uh, for a magazine, for, let's say, more than 10 years maybe. And also in recent years, I'm uh, working for documentaries, like sometimes as co-directing or sometimes, you know, as like a consultant for other people's documentaries. So, so I think maybe even my anthropological interest comes from that because I was actually working as a photojournalist. And then I started studying anthropology a bit later than that. And my feeling was that as a photojournalist that covers more cultural stories because I was working for a magazine that is kind of like geography culture magazine. So we were covering anthropological stories and I really enjoyed it a lot. I still enjoy it a lot, but I always felt like it's missing something. You know, I I do visit communities or I, I cover different stories, but I'm there just for a week or two weeks. So I just have the gist of it, but I want to go deeper. And it, it was at that moment that I actually I started, I decided to um, start studying anthropology. So my journalism background is even older than anthropology. And I think this is a great combination. I, I really love it. Um, because it is true that most of our anthropological research could be uh, like, a, like a journalist story, let's say. And of course, it's always nice to share your work with the public. So so that's why I really enjoy, of course, going deep into the subject. But I also love to take photographs or videos and to make it available for the public in a more uh, understandable language, let's say. And I really enjoy creative writing. So well, the problem is I kind of actually <laughs> I'm used to it so much that to me it is more challenging to write academic articles because... <laughs> you know, it's like, oh man, I want people to understand it, you know. But anyway, you know this discussions it's another subject, like language of academia, of course, doesn't also have to be very complicated. I think it's nice that now a lot of anthropological work or in anthropology we also use this kind of more creative language or writing style uh, in recent years, so that that's the reason why I really like anthropology too. Um. So, but but of course having this both jobs is sometimes very complicated as well because it is true that as much as uh, i enjoy it it's sometimes also very challenging because what the media wants is of course quite different than our <laughs> long uh, you know deep anthropological research and i have this dilemma all the time you know All the time, because, um, like, for instance, just I can give you an example, no, like, um, cut it short, like, even if you are working as a journalist for a newspaper, for a magazine, or if you are making a film for a TV channel, you are never in full control of what you are doing. So basically, you, you have the subject, you write things, but there are editors, no, There there is production companies, there is, like, it goes through many people. And these people are, of course, not uh, anthropologists, so their concerns are not so much ethical always, but it's more about to take attention, to take public attention, to make it look more interesting, you know. So this is why it is true that I had uh, some... uh, There has been incidents that I was also disappointed from the last version of my work because I was like, oh, no, that's not... (laughs) For instance, the title... I don't know if it is the same, but most of the time, as the author of an article, you are not the one who writes the title, and it's the editors. And the same for documentary films. So for instance, uh, one incident, just to keep it very short, with my work on, in Duha, what happened is that I wrote an article, and I had photographs, and the article, I saw the last version, and it was everything was fine, but then it came up with this title of something like The Lost Tribe, I'm like, oh no! <laughs> But like, you know, it's no, no. But you see what I mean, right? But it was already out there and I had no control on it. And then, well, yeah, <laughs> you can imagine the rest. And the same thing happened with a few documentaries that I work for. So it's complicated. It's, it's 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 I love it. I really feel privileged to be able to reach out my work to the public. But then there's all this... Uh, complications that comes with it and you should be ready and you should be aware that you will not always be in charge and you will criticize for that blah 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 so um but in general i strongly believe that uh, more academic work should be available to public Um, and this is a risk that we should take as academicians because well yeah it's important i think that people uh, know about our work
0: I completely agree. Um, So how do you, when you were conducting research among the Dukha, how did you frame your position, your intentions, and maybe the outcome of your research to them? You know, I'm sure people must have asked you, what are you doing here? Why are you interested in this? Like, what brought you here? I'm sure these are conversations you must have had over and over again. So how did you explain that to them? How did you, you know, I think, um, what's maybe slightly unique about your research is that, you know, if you're doing both producing both a dissertation, but also more public-oriented pieces. You're, if you're producing photojournalism pieces, if you're producing documentaries, those are reach a wider audience. Um, whereas when you're only conducting kind of academic research, maybe nobody is going to read that except your dissertation committee and some random person like me, you know, <laughs> the very small audience. So how did you kind of explain that or present that mm-hmm. to the people you are talking to? You know, what the kind of outcome or reception of your work was going to be? Who was the audience that you were going to kind of present the, the ducha and the people you were living among yeah. to? Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, that's that's true, and that's um, I think in that question also, photojournalism part uh, was a bit more comprehensive for the Zuka, I guess. So, so my methodology was like it was a typical ethnography. You know, I lived with one family for like eleven months. I was tied guy a few times, and at the beginning, of course, it was like I guess like always, it's a bit difficult to explain that to people. No, like I am well, like. Writing a dissertation and to make it more simple, I want to understand your culture, I want to write these things, I want to, you know, like keep these things. But it's always, I mean, they were always very welcoming and I'm always very grateful to them for that. But of course, it was a bit more not so understandable as well, right? What exactly I'm doing and like because there is nothing concrete. But then also, the first time I went, it was the time that I covered a story about them in the magazine. And I was telling them about that, you know, and that they understood, of course, because for sure they, they, they have newspapers, they have magazines that they're aware. And the second time I went to the tiger, first of all, I could take something concrete with me, like the magazine itself. And everybody was so happy to see themselves on the magazine and everything. But I think more importantly, um, more importantly, the consequences of that Uh, helps people a lot because what happened is... I think I was lucky. It doesn't happen every time we publish something in a magazine, but what happened is that um, that issue became quite popular in Turkey. It was for a Turkish magazine. And then um, let's say we have like a government agency in Mongolia that are working with communities and they saw it. They contacted me. They asked me if there is anything they can do for the duha. Then I took it to the people. I told them about it. And then there were some... Uh, let's say social projects that this uh, agency conducted with the Duha like for instance <laughs> well, they actually brought reindeers from Russia to them for to make the genetic pool a bit larger because this is something that the Duha wanted, well it's a complicated subject but that they wanted also they kind of, uh, because the Mongolian government um, kind of uh, gave Duha solar panels and the material that to cover their tents and, but most of them were very. Also, this agency also helped them buy things. Um, but anyway, to cut it short, I, as, as I said, I was also lucky. It doesn't always happen like that. But the consequences of this article was something very concrete for the society, and of course, I was very happy that you know I was the medita- mediator, let's say, between <laughs> them and this what happened. Um, And, of course, also, you know, it's always very complicated. As an anthropologist, you are a burden on people for such a long time and you want to give something back. And, you know, it's not always so easy. Or, of course, we want to believe that our work will be the thing that we give back, and I still (laughs) believe in that in the long term. But it was very nice and satisfying to see, like, a more short-term, something to give back in the short term, and that happened to be honest, thanks to the article than the dissertation.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, yeah, because I think so many times academic researchers, we want to think, you know, ideally that our research will have those outcomes. And I think often we, when we're doing field work, we present ourselves to the people we're working with as being able to create those kind of outcomes. But very often that just doesn't happen because of the kind of the very small audience for academic research and publications. It just doesn't reach the number of people or reach the right people to be able to actually create social or political change. So that's a really interesting example of other methodologies or maybe a combination of methodological approaches with kind of academic um, and more kind of popular oriented writing and media that can create something tangible, can that can have some output and change.
1: I mean, as I said, it's, it has cons and pros, no? because of because of this particular article, to, to make it more concrete, it was the article that they said, like the lost tribe thing, that I felt terrible as an anthropologist. And it's true that I was faced with a lot of criticism from academicians. Of course, I understand completely their criticism. It was just like, I didn't do it. But anyway, you can't explain that to people. But on the other hand, the same article had this kind of consequences for the society. So I think it's if you are going into the area of the media as a researcher, I think we should do our best, but then we should also accept that there will be compromises to be made at some point. So which one you choose or the balance is something that every case will be different, of course. But um, yeah, it's, it's pros and cons like anything, I guess, in life.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that balance of trying to be a good academic, but also a good journalist. If you're going to try to wear both hats, you want to do both things well, but sometimes those, the goals and what constitutes good scholarship or good journalism, those don't always align. Um, So yeah, where you're going to make those compromises um, and in whose interest uh, are, large ethical questions that I think more people should think about um, more carefully, or that anthropologists and scholars in general should
1: maybe receive better training on. I don't know. Um, No, that is true. I completely agree. We should definitely get training about that because it's really important and... (laughs) Yeah, Uh,
0: so we are out of time, unfortunately. Uh, I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about, but nevertheless, thank you so much uh, for joining me and sharing your research, your insight into the Doha, your insight into your methodological approaches and approach to anthropological scholarship and fieldwork. I think there's a lot that other scholars could learn from your work.
1: so much no thank you so much maybe well I do love your podcast listening to other episodes and these issues are I, I love discussing them you know like we could I feel that we could discuss and talk for hours and hours so <laughs> thank you so much it's been like uh, really fun for me to be here